0: The Palo Alto Research Center, commonly referred to as PARC, and which was formerly known as Xerox PARC, is a research and development company with a great many accomplishments to its name. Xerox created Park as a separate division within its broader umbrella company so that it would have an entity under its corporate aegis that would despite being under that larger umbrella still be separated from the everyday activities and deadlines that defined normal operations at Xerox proper. The main Park facility was even located on the other side of the United States in Palo Alto, California, while the main Xerox headquarters was located in Rochester, New York. And that ensured that there was something of an air gap between the usual corporate goings-on and whatever the park folk decided to get themselves up to. In its first decades of life, the people at park invented or incubated the laser printer, bitmap graphics, The graphical user interface, meaning the foundations of pretty much every operating system and all the software that is run on an operating system that you've ever used on any device ever. The what you see is what you get or WYSIWYG text editor, meaning the type of editor that is used in software like Microsoft Word and Google Docs that allows you to type something and add line breaks and to bold certain words by clicking on a button, things like that. They developed InterPress, which was the precursor to PostScript, which is the technology that allows you to print text at a high resolution and which sparked the so-called desktop publishing revolution. They invented Ethernet, object-oriented programming, prototype-based programming, and the Model View Controller programming architecture, which is used by programming languages like Java, C-sharp, Ruby, and PHP. They also developed the Xerox Alto, which was the first personal computer to include a mouse, and which also included a graphical user interface for that mouse to help you navigate. The Alto also had an Ethernet port, and this was in the 70s, before all of this stuff existed on other computers, so this was pretty edgy technology to have built into any type of product, much less a personal computer. Nokia Bell Labs, which was in its heyday just called Bell Labs, is similar to Park in several respects. For starters, it's a research and development company that exists under the larger umbrella of the Finnish company Nokia. The precursor of Bell Labs was founded by Alexander Graham Bell, After he won the third Volta Prize, which was an award established by Napoleon Bonaparte in 1801 to reward Alessandro Volta for inventing the battery, Bell, for his part, won the award for his invention of the telephone. And the prize itself was worth 50,000 francs, which was equal to about 10,000 U.S. dollars in 1880, the year he received that award. And adjusting for inflation, that's about 260,000 modern U.S. dollars. Bell used that prize money to fund the Volta Laboratory, also known as the Alexander Graham Bell Laboratory, And at this lab, he furthered his research on sound, the transmission of sound, the recording of sound, and things of that nature. His research into this realm led to more profits, which he then invested in another much bigger laboratory a few years later. The American Bell Telephone Company was founded at this new location, and 40 years later, Western Electric Research Laboratories and the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, which is more commonly known today as AT&T, and which is the descendant of the Bell Telephone Company, consolidated to form Bell Telephone Laboratories Incorporated, or just Bell Laboratories for short. At Bell Laboratories, researchers developed radio astronomy, the transistor, which was the precursor to the microchip in many regards, the laser information theory, which is the concept that underpins essentially all communication technologies today, from computers to the internet to things like MP3s and zip files and JPEGs. They developed the Unix operating system and the C and C++ programming languages. They were the first to demonstrate the wave nature of matter, discovered cosmic microwave background radiation, figured out how to trap atoms inside of lasers, and invented charge-coupled device, or CCD, semiconducting image sensors, which are the chips that allow pretty much all digital cameras, including the ones in our phones to function. There's one more organization I want to mention here, and like the others, this organization was and is made up of a group of people who have punched well outside their weight class in terms of developing useful things that have at times just been very cool, in which at other times have changed the world in some significant way. The Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, was a U.S. government agency that was authorized by President Eisenhower in 1958. The purpose of ARPA was to do research in fields that went beyond the immediate requirements of the day. And because this was a military agency, that meant beyond the military requirements of the day. So rather than inventing the next iteration of existing tanks or missiles, they would focus on moonshot-style gambits, that could give the U.S. a huge leg up over their, at the time, biggest existential threat, the Soviet Union. The work they did has been described as, quote, high-risk, high-gain, far-out research, end quote. And it was the type of research that was tempting enough to pull a bunch of well-known scientists and inventors from high-paying jobs at places like General Electric, which was kind of the Apple or Amazon of the day, to come work for the government and for a paycheck that was something like one-tenth of what they were making before. That's how bizarre and interesting and rewarding, potentially, this type of setup was, and how exciting the work was to the people who were able to do it. In its early years, ARPA actually housed a lot of space-based R&D, but in 1960, all civilian space programs were moved over to the recently founded National Aeronautics and Space Administration, more commonly known as NASA. So from there, ARPA refocused its attention on things like anti-ballistic missile technologies, computer processing, behavioral science programs, and material science research, the latter of which sounds a little boring until you realize that almost all era-defining innovations have been dependent to some degree on new materials that have been discovered or developed, whether that means bronze or steel way back in the day, or in more modern times, a new type of polymer, a new ceramic, or even things like silicon that lead to inventions like the microchip and solar panels. ARPA also developed Transit, a program that was the predecessor of GPS, and they developed a little thing called ARPANET, which was the seedling that eventually grew into the internet that we know today. ARPA became DARPA in 1972, when it was renamed the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. From there, it worked on tactical technologies, direct energy programs, computer time-sharing technologies, and of course, the evolution of ARPANET into the internet. Since then, they've done a lot of research into artificial intelligence applications. They developed a precursor to virtual reality called the Aspen Movie Map. And in recent years, they've organized symposiums focused on interstellar travel, X-planes, which are different types of experimental aircraft, and computer security, especially as it relates to hacking by both foreign and domestic antagonists. None of these organizations were perfect, and all three had what we might consider to be golden ages, followed by rapid or slow decline into something else entirely. Either into more conventional R&D departments with the usual flaws, or into essentially symbols that represent innovation and inventiveness, but which, on a practical level, mostly just putter around and churn out less sexy accomplishments, at least compared to what they did back in the day. All of them, though, are special in that they were given comparable free reign to go where their interests took them. Rather than being beholden to the pace of business or the typical pace of the military, they were able to move at an appropriate pace for whatever it was they were doing at the time. They were able to invest in things that likely wouldn't work. They were able to fail 99% of the time and still keep their jobs so long as they were making attempts that might result in something incredible that remaining 1% of the time. What I want to talk about today is the pursuit of of certainty, or rather I want to focus on one particular way in which we pursue certainty, quantification, and how quantification is influencing both our behaviors and how we perceive things like growth and change. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I'm recording this episode two days into the year 2018, and many people, extrapolating based on sales numbers, for 2017 at least, will be just now beginning to use their new health and productivity-related personal devices that they received as gifts or bought for themselves over the holidays. There are devices in this space that track your footsteps that keep tabs on your caloric intake or body weight index that measure your productive time throughout the day. I have a little sensor that lives under my mattress that detects my heartbeat and breathing rhythms while I sleep, and then delivers data to an app on my phone each morning, telling me how much REM, light, and deep sleep I got the night before, and telling me when I fell asleep, if I woke up at some point the night before and how my previous night's effort compares to both my average and that of, quote, other sleepers like me, end quote, whatever that means. These trackers are part of an interesting and important movement that itself plugs into several other technological movements that are happening right now. The evolution of small energy-sipping technologies that go into devices like smartphones is part of this movement as are the networking technologies, the mobile internet, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, that allow those devices to talk to each other and to the larger internet. Also important is the emergence of big data with a capital B and a capital D, which is essentially a field defined by the crunching of massive numbers of data points, billions of data points rather than the hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands that we've dealt with until now. We use a variety of tools to do this, some of which conventionally fall under the header of artificial intelligence, but the important thing to know here is that as we collect more and more data, we are also developing systems and methods to organize that data and derive meaning from it. The emergence of new interfaces, touch screens, haptic feedback, audio interfaces, and things like that also play a role here. If we were locked into the keyboard and mouse interfaces of a few decades ago, we wouldn't have as many ubiquitous technologies tucked into the world around us and on our wrists and in our pockets, like the bed sensors and Fitbits and smartphone accelerometers that we've very quickly come to take for granted. These and other technologies have merged to become part of a larger trend, often referred to as the quantified self movement. This is an idea that started formally in the 1970s and was for a long time, until just recently actually, more frequently referred to as life logging, as in keeping a log of what happens in your life. Early versions of life logging involved actually keeping a physical log, a notebook, of what data you were able to collect about your life. So what you ate on a given day, what exercises you did, who you met with, how you spent your time who you had sex with and how many times, things like that. Even further back than the 70s, we've known about people who have obsessively tracked such things about themselves, often less because they hoped to optimize it or in any way act upon the data they acquired, and more because it was some kind of compulsion akin to bottling one's own urine or obsessively cleaning one's own home. For every Benjamin Franklin who developed his own time-tracking system to help him optimize how he spent his waking hours, there's a Georges Perec who in 1974 wrote down everything he ate every day of the year and presented the list as a short story entitled Attempt at an Inventory, or a Nicholas Feltron who captured his behavioral data for 10 years and each year created a beautiful infographic portraying his activities. In commemoration, Felton's infographics are available to purchase as posters, so you could argue that his data collection had practical utility beyond mere navel gazing. But the point I want to make is that even though there are good arguments to be made, that there are good arguments to collect data in this way by tracking ourselves in a notebook or using a wrist mounted, sensor loaded device of some kind. There's also maybe something else going on in many cases, something less productive. Maybe it's curiosity. Maybe it's obsessiveness. Maybe it's a sense that we are leaving an opportunity on the table if we fail to account for that one meal we had that one time, a meal that may turn out to be a key bit of information that could have helped us achieve greatness or delay death in some way. The rationale no doubt varies from person to person. But regardless, there's something intriguing about all this, about the idea that we can quantify ourselves, can put numbers to our attributes and habits, can maybe, if we know enough, or if we can give that data to people or software who know enough, maybe we can become better versions of ourselves, can become stronger or healthier or smarter or happier in some way. Maybe we can optimize ourselves if we can accumulate the right data, and then parse that data in the right way. The article I want to start from today comes from the UK edition of Wired Magazine, and it's entitled Curbing Your Data Addiction Will Help You Make Better Decisions. This article quickly sums up the purpose of what's being called the Quantified Self Movement, while also critiquing that movement and the tenets held by both its enthusiasts and those making the devices that pull converts into the fold. It then, also quickly, as it is kind of a short piece, touches on one of the big issues faced by this industry and the people who have become dedicates of it. Namely, that for all the purported benefits, there is a massive downside that comes in the shape of a steady deluge of data that may or may not actually be meaningful. Now, before I delve deeper into that ever so important downside, Let's take a quick look at the life-logging quantified self industry and get more specific about what falls under that header. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, some of the more visible aspects of this industry at the moment can be seen in the Fitbits and smartwatches and Wi-Fi-enabled bodyweight scales that we wear on our wrists and have in our homes. There are devices that track your heart rate, your blood pressure, your insulin and cortisol levels, the microbial cells that live in your body, and there are even devices that can sequence your DNA from home, though that latter device type is a little more specialized and rare for the time being. Which leads me to the important point that, until just recently, the majority of this information was only available to hardcore and generally well-moneyed body hackers athletes primarily, but also optimization obsessives like Tim Ferriss, people who really geek out on this kind of thing and can afford to spend tens of thousands of dollars or more on an at-home DNA sequencer. There is still a tier in this industry that's relegated to folks who can afford those expensive, often less user-friendly, and also often much larger, less built-for-scale devices and systems. So what we see today on the consumer market is a reflection of what that facet of the quantified self world was doing 5 or 10 years ago, and what they're doing today, that group of people, the rest of us probably will not see for a few years at the low end. But the majority of big players in this space today are those consumer-facing entities like Fitbit, Jawbone, Nike, Apple, Samsung, Garmin, Wythings, and Misfit. These companies make some of the best-selling fitness trackers on the market as of the day I'm recording this at least. But there are other players, big and small, that thrive in the Wi-Fi-enabled toothbrush and Bluetooth-enabled refrigerator market, while still others own the food tabulation and body mass index reading smart scale industry. This is a broad and diverse space populated by both incumbents and upstarts of all shapes and sizes. Though I will say, notably, There are many more upstarts in this field today than there have been at any time in the past, and a key component of this shift is the relatively novel and widespread availability of cheap hardware and software that allows even nascent, bootstrapped B2C companies to sell affordable gadgets to the public. Another aspect of this movement that has made it possible for small companies to step in and gain large customer bases quickly is what's commonly called gamification, which essentially means bringing elements of games like goals, reward systems, competition, and even just reframing as something you do for fun rather than as a chore. These features are added to these sensors and other tracking devices. So instead of just wearing a band on your wrist that tracks your heartbeat, You may receive badges for walking 5,000 steps each day and points for eating more vegetables than the majority of people in your region. You lose points or badges or whatever if you neglect your walking for a day. The gamification here is an attempt to help you build new habits by providing you with, let's face it, meaningless rewards that despite being meaningless can still trigger the release of cortisol, a stress-related hormone into your system if you miss a day of walking the intended number of steps, but which can also trigger the release of dopamine, a pleasure-related neurotransmitting chemical that can make you feel good if you achieve a goal and receive those fake accolades for doing so. In other words, gamification is an effort to rewire your brain so that you come to associate the right behaviors with pleasure and the wrong behaviors with stress. This is a tactic that social networks use to try to keep you engaged and liking and sharing, by the way, which is kind of messed up but very effective. You could argue that it's probably less ethically questionable to use these triggers to keep people active rather than trying to keep them glued to Facebook. But it's often kind of both, regardless of who's doing the manipulating and for what purposes. We're being chemically trained to take more steps, sure, but we're also being trained to look forward to pats on the head from an app made by a particular company, which in turn encourages us to develop a reliance on their brand, their product, and their user interface, and their reward system. So there are pros and cons, no matter how you slice it, and who is doing the training. It's difficult to find reliable figures for the quantified self-industry as an independent entity, in part because it's so sprawling and there are no clear delineations between, for example, the tech used in our smartphones that collect data and provide feedback and the tech used in our smart toothbrushes that collect data and provide feedback. But it's estimated that over 200 million wearable devices of this kind will have been shipped by 2019 and that connected personal devices as a whole, all inclusive, will add around 14.4 trillion dollars to the global economy. But again, huge caveat here. Where you draw the line is important. If you try to assess the impact, economic or otherwise, of just health trackers, that's one thing. If you aim at all quantified self devices, you'll find yourself touching on thousands of industries and subindustries. And you could arguably cast an even wider net and look into data collection of every kind, from your heart rate picked up by your Fitbit to your shopping history, maintained and aggregated from multiple sources by Amazon, to your credit history, maintained by private and public agencies that have a vested interest, it is their entire product after all, in knowing absolutely everything they can learn about you. You might even include journals and pencils in there too, since some people track their habits the old-fashioned way. Quantified self, then, is all of this and more. And though when we talk about this industry here on the ground, we're usually talking about devices we can buy and services to which we can subscribe that help us know more about ourselves individually using some kind of tracking mechanism, it's important to remember that this is just one small part of a massive, sprawling web of information vacuums and aggregators that suck up whatever they can find from countless different default and opt-in sources, which they can then cobble together into something that reflects us and our habits, and which perhaps someday will even paint a better picture of who we are than we ourselves could express if we were asked to. And that is really kind of the dream of the quantified self-movement in the first place. The whole purpose of collecting this data is not just to have data about ourselves for the fun of it, but to use that data to optimize something. To learn something new that we wouldn't have otherwise known, or wouldn't have noticed, and to use that new insight to make productive changes, to be a better version of ourselves. For some people, this dream seems to have already arrived. They've been able to collect some data, crunch that data, and squeeze some answers from the data. Maybe they've always felt horrible a few days out of every month, and only by looking at the notebook containing a daily list of everything that they ate for a year were they able to make the connection that, huh, they always felt horrible two days after eating shellfish. Maybe they shouldn't eat shellfish anymore. Maybe they have an allergy that for some reason went unnoticed. For others, this data allows them to identify diseases or conditions before more noticeable symptoms start messing with their lives. The Apple Watch software allows wearers to opt in to studies for exactly this purpose. As I'm recording this, they have an irregular heart rhythm study taking place, which combines data collected from all the Apple Watch users who opt into the study in an attempt to glean new knowledge about the subject. And the company claims that many users have already written them to say thanks for identifying a latent heart arrhythmia or atrial fibrillation, the latter of which is a leading cause of stroke before it became a problem for them which, if true, is pretty cool. Unfortunately, however, the results in this space are not always all that useful. There was a piece in the US version of Wired magazine recently entitled Science Says Fitness Trackers Don't Work, Wear One Anyway. And this piece, as you might have guessed, lays out some sobering statistics about these data-gathering devices. First and foremost, it turns out that a full one-third of people who buy fitness trackers stop using them completely after six months, and more than half stop using them eventually. Which is a strange thing to note in a study, if you think about it, because on a long enough timeline, we are all dead, and therefore probably not wearing our fitness trackers. I wish they would have provided better numbers on that. I'm assuming they had some number of years in mind to represent eventually. But lack of clarity aside, that research still provided a compelling enough result that The Atlantic published an article about it entitled Fitbit? More like Quitbit. Sweet burn, Atlantic. But perhaps more important than the lack of perpetuity in fitness tracker usage is research that shows these devices don't actually seem to work terribly well. At least not in the sense you might think. The research in question was done by the peer-reviewed medical journal The Lancet, and to summarize, they found that folks who use fitness trackers do not lose any more weight than those who do not wear fitness trackers. And weight was the metric for this research because the fitness program all the test subjects went through was a weight loss program. What the study found specifically was that there wasn't any significant difference between the two groups. And in fact, those who were incentivized to maintain their workout habits by being paid a small amount of money in addition to wearing the fitness tracker did worse than everyone else once that monetary incentive was taken away. So there's a small amount of support here for the idea that certain gamification elements can actually be counterproductive to developing habits that strengthen our overall health, or at the very least could lock us in to a particular type of gamified reward system, which implies we're being even more manipulated than we thought by these points and badges and user rankings and so on. Now, there are some issues with that particular study that are worth mentioning here. It was started in 2013, for starters, and the field of fitness trackers has evolved in a substantial way in the years since then. The emergence of the Apple Watch, for instance, sent a lightning bolt through the smartwatch industry, which in turn led to secondary blowback innovations in the fitness tracker field so that they could compete with all the new whiz-bang features that were now available on their competitors' products, those changes to the hardware and software, but also the culture around fitness trackers, making them more common and therefore more socially acceptable, those have not been accounted for in this study. And I would assume, not based on anything in particular, but I would assume that that might change some of the results. So it's an interesting study, but not a silver bullet. I will be interested to see what more contemporary studies have to say on the subject, particularly those that measure the long-term benefits of wearing things like smart watches, which are often bigger investments, and therefore, I suspect, will tend to be worn longer and more frequently than purpose-built fitness trackers by most people. One of the biggest issues in this space right now, and this is big in the sense of being big picture as well as being substantial, is that although we are becoming more skilled at collecting data, at building tiny, accurate energy-sipping sensors and incorporating them into every last thing we wear and interact with throughout the day, we don't necessarily know that we are collecting the right data, that the numbers we're collecting mean anything, at least to most people. So we're getting great at generating more data, but our ability to parse meaning from all that data is not moving at the same pace. And most important for this discussion, we haven't been able to show with authority that the things we are measuring are meaningful to the majority of the population. It's almost like we're being handed reams of paper, piles of sheets of paper, all with writing covering front and back of all the sheets. And we're being told that there is something useful somewhere in that pile. We don't know where the useful parts are, and we don't know how much of it there might be. We kind of broadly sort of know what we're looking for, but we don't know if what we're looking for is the correct thing to be looking for either. Do steps per day actually matter all that much? When all of us have such different strides, different metabolisms, different overall bodies, different lifestyles, how much heart rate variation can be found across the entirety of the human species? And how do we account for that variety in our measurements? Knowing as little as we do about sleep, how confident are we that the sensors that track such things are incentivizing us to correct in the right direction, to get this much deep sleep, for instance, and this much REM sleep, with the sheer quantity of different positions on diet that are out there, all with different types and quantities of research backing them up, can any food tracking app honestly claim to help all potential users eat more healthily? The pro-tracking argument here is that by collecting this data, we make it more likely that we will come to learn more, and eventually enough, about these things that we need to know, and over time, the data will become more useful as a consequence. Now that's an argument I actually tend to believe, and I do think we're in a pretty good spot to both collect increasingly more data and make better use of it year over year. The flip side of this stance, however, and this is another position that I also tend to believe, is that we are being sold these devices based on the promise that they'll make us healthier, not that they will collect raw data, which may or may not be meaningful to us today. How many people would buy a Fitbit tracker if all it did was help contribute to general human knowledge? And not even that, actually. It would contribute to the body of knowledge owned by a single corporate entity, an entity that would be unlikely to share that knowledge with anyone else outside their corporate walls so that they can maintain a strategic advantage within their field. I personally like supporting such causes wherever possible, but would I spend $50 or $100 if I was given that kind of sales pitch? Quite possibly not. Probably not, if we're asking about the population as a whole. That's a lot of money for something that doesn't feed your family or pay the rent. It's inessential. And again, it's bolstering the scientific know-how of one company, not humanity as a whole, so it's more difficult to make the pitch that it's a humanist or charitable expense. So although this space is laden with all kinds of dreams, dreams of bettering ourselves and human knowledge, the supporting evidence for this is still unavailable. It may be that these things actually do work as advertised, and the research that's been done thus far is flawed or incomplete. That is very possible, but it does kind of look like an industry based on flimsy promises at the moment, and the most that can be honestly offered is reams of paper worth of data, all of which may be potentially useful or not, but we don't yet know enough to know the difference with any certainty. Now on top of all of that, and this is where things get really uncomfortable to think about, there's a built-in bias to the assumptions we're making about what's a good thing and what's a bad thing. Just as with algorithms and software, the way we build these supposedly unbiased structures is actually biased at the root in the way that we build them and implement them. We just treat them as if they're not because they use quantifiable variables, but that's not the case. A good example of what I mean here are the optimization methods found within businesses, habits and routines, and even whole systems that optimize a business entity for making money. But the way in which we make money is important, because it impacts how the people making that money, the -the on-the-ground drones, but also the people up top, feel about how they're spending their time. It also influences how their environment is treated, how society feels about them, and how society reshapes over time as a consequence of their presence. Further, If you look at the venture capital model of funding startups, you begin to see how making money isn't a universally beneficial thing, even for those who are part of the company that's being optimized. The VC model is one that can be very helpful for certain types of companies, but what it's really optimized for is making money for the investors, the venture capitalists, and ideally making back around 10 times or more of the money they invested. So their small number of successes will more than pay for the larger number of failures throughout an investment period. Looking at that setup then, one which has become very prevalent in the past few decades, particularly in places like Silicon Valley, it's easier to see how even successful money-making models are not created equal. You could compare the pros and cons of running a VC-backed company or a bootstrapped company using many different metrics. And you could come up with different winners in different circumstances. If the mechanisms you're using to track success favor one or the other of these systems, though, you may not even be aware that you're being funneled into a machine that's not ideal for you and your aims. You may optimize for making money, but not in a way that will be optimal for you and your goals. And because of the way that these things are set up, you may not even be aware that there was any other option. If you step back far enough, Meaning, if you move more macro from your everyday experience to step back and take a look at the big picture, and then you step back again to look at the even bigger picture and then back and back and back, you will probably eventually see the world and the universe in which it exists as a clockwork mechanism of sorts. One that, given enough time and knowledge, we might be able to understand to a far larger degree than we do today. That's a key component of what's called chaos theory, by the way. The idea being that if our math becomes sophisticated enough, but also importantly, if our measurements and understanding of the universe become thorough enough, we should be able to predict the outcomes of everything, to know exactly how every change, every action, will impact absolutely everything else. I buy an apple from the corner market, And this grand formula can predict how that action will influence the commute of a person living in a city a thousand miles away. We are obviously nowhere near that yet, but the dream is that we get closer and closer to that ideal. And as a consequence of getting closer, those who have the right data, with the right formulas, the right broad understanding of things, and the connections between things, they will have an advantage. This applies at the corporate level, with every CEO wanting to be capable of predicting consumer habits better than their competitor, and more capable of building products and to market those products in a way that meets the needs of the spending public optimally. This applies at the government level, with leaders on all sides wanting to predict the movements of their competitors, but also the larger economic forces of an interconnected world and, at times, the troop and weaponry movements of their military foes. And this also applies on the individual level, with each of us wanting to understand the world a little bit better, so that we can play a better role within it, whatever better might mean to us personally, and so that we can optimize ourselves in some way, be it physically, mentally, professionally, or otherwise, to achieve our ambitions. But again, we are still in the early days of all this, of understanding and even collecting the right data, and in how we collect that data. But even if we're in the early days, there is still value in that process. Even if we can't become powerful chaos theorists wielding godlike predictive powers, we can still potentially benefit from quantifying ourselves, our habits, and other aspects of our lives. There's a lot to be said for the placebo effect when it comes to industries like this one. There's a lot of data that supports its effects too. So even if you merely believe that you're behaving healthier by wearing one of these fitness bands, there's a chance that you will feel healthier as well. And there's a decent chance that pure optimism, a reframing of your self-perception, will in turn cause you to make better choices when it comes to food and workouts and other connected habits, which will lead to better health outcomes, even if they did not occur as a direct result of one of these fitness trackers. I also suspect, and there doesn't seem to be any research available on this, so all I can do is suspect, that getting a fitness band or starting to use some other tracking device or quantification routine can serve as a mental catalyst for some people, symbolizing and sparking the beginning of something new. Just as New Year's resolutions can jumpstart our desire to make new changes and can serve as a dividing line between how we were and how we're going to be, Getting a footstep-tracking wristband can be the divider between before, where we didn't care about such things, and after, a time in which we now care about our health and do things to help improve it. And that's a completely legitimate use for anything. Wristbands or holidays or totally made-up mental milestones or anything else. There's power in catalysts and milestones, and there is momentum in placebos I personally make use of little triggers of this kind all the time, and find it usually helps me to do what I aim to do, even if the help is probably less concrete and substantial than I imagine it to be. The reason I opened this episode with an overview of Park and Bell Labs and ARPA, which became DARPA, is that these were companies that were able to create frameworks for growth and operate with less certainty within those frameworks. Rather than deciding where they would end up and then moving steadfastly in that direction, maybe occasionally, accidentally, stumbling upon a valuable spinoff discovery in the process, they lived and breathed those opportunities, those spinoffs. They chased wild, interesting theories and ideas, and knew from the get-go that they would kill off most of them. Rather than allowing a quantified system, a set of optimized data, to guide their every move... They set off in a rough direction and allowed themselves to change direction regularly, which left them open to more eureka moments and coincidental happenstance revelations, opportunities of which they were primed to take advantage. While researching for this episode, I read a blog post that was essentially just a summary of interesting quotes pulled from emails written by Alan Kay, one of the researchers who worked at Park back in the day, primarily on object-oriented programming, which he also named, and on the personal computer technologies that would eventually be utilized and monetized by Apple computers. In one of these emails, he said the following, I once gave a talk to Disney executives about new ways to kill the geese that lay the golden eggs. For example, set up deadlines and quotas for the eggs. Make the geese into managers. Make the geese go to meetings to justify their diet. And day-to-day processes, demand golden coins from the geese rather than eggs, demand platinum, rather than gold, require that the geese make plans and explain just how they will make the eggs that will be laid, etc. I had quite a few more, and most thought it was funny talk. Oscar Wilde once said, if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh, or they will kill you. But only a few in those Michael Eisner days of Disney in the late 90s, realized that they should just let the geese lay the eggs. Someone else can make the coins. Someone else can buy platinum with the gold. Someone else can manage, and so forth. Most of these kinds of misunderstandings are because many people really want other people to be like them. It was harder to explain to the Disney execs and many potential contemporary founders, what the golden age funders understood full well. Namely, the reason they are the funders is because they did something that got them in control, in one way or another, of money. Meanwhile, the people who should be funded were spending their time getting deeper and better at their arts." In other words, the people in charge of organizing things, of building the systems are often good at making money. But what they hope to achieve, the place they want to go, is sometimes a place defined by the creative endeavors of people who are not money-making minded. They are creative people doing creative things, and if they are put through a management meat grinder, forced to live as if they are optimizing for making money, they will lose some of their abilities. They won't be able to perform optimally as creatives, because optimal is being defined by standards that are meaningful to the managers and not as meaningful to those doing the creating. Another point made in those emails, and I will link to the blog post that contains them in the show notes, is that artificial constraints on creativity outperforms pre-planned paths to solutions. Meaning, if you can create a framework that allows creativity to flourish, like, for instance, a park, or a Bell Labs, or a grant system, that allows creative folk to work for a year without artificial business deadlines, that seems to outperform pre-planned paths, at least in terms of innovation, as opposed to iteration. I would add to this point that the latter, iteration, requires deadlines and discipline, and increasingly, it requires data to accomplish regularly and successfully while the former requires stamina and skill, but also the ability to think asymmetrically and imagine outside the existing paradigm. Creativity also requires some kind of firm foundation upon which to stand. I personally do my best creative work when I know I can afford to pay the rent and eat. I'm guessing many other people who create things feel the same. But I also find that I work best when I have my own self-imposed deadlines in place. And when I segment my time between different projects, back in the day, when I was working primarily as a designer, I worked on projects in which I limited myself to just three colors, or just text, or only handmade illustrations, or exclusively asymmetric layouts. In most cases, these limitations would catalyze inspiration. They would take me down paths that I wouldn't have taken otherwise. But they were still frameworks rather than the type of limitation that designates where you will end up before you even start walking. That's the main difference here. If you choose your destination ahead of time, you are saying that you know what you will find when you get there, which is not always the case with creative endeavors or when you're inventing new things. Unless you already know what a computer is, you can't say, I'm going to invent a computer. You have to take a heretofore unknown, potentially wildly meandering path to get there, because you can't pre-select a destination you don't know exists, much less decide on a deadline for when you will arrive there. Now that said, well-defined paths are often superior choices for the iterative efforts that account for the majority of upgrades and maintenance in every industry. And I've argued before on this show that this type of work is actually, in many ways, the more important kind for the day-to-day functionality of societies and should be respected as such, even though the groundbreaking out-of-nowhere inventions tend to get the sexy, great-man theory treatment when the biographies of the people behind them are made into movies. We have a lot more films and books about Steve Jobs than we do about the janitors who worked at Apple. But it's important to understand the difference, and to know what you're aiming for in a given situation. If you clutch too tightly when trying to innovate, you will almost certainly find that you can only manage to iterate. This is true in technology and business, and in self-realization and personal growth. It's prudent to be realistic about this kind of thing, to use these products and these systems with our eyes wide open, rather than fooling ourselves into thinking we know all we need to know. That we are absolutely collecting the right information, and that the information we are collecting is the be-all, end-all important data. That it's all we need. It's important to understand the limits of contemporary quantification, to know how we hope to use it, what we hope to achieve, and then, if it makes sense to do so, to go ahead and use these tools for the value they can already add today. Be open to changing that dynamic, to adjusting it as new information, new trackers, and new sensors, and new models that might recalibrate your habits towards something that better suits your goal become available. Be flexible with this stuff, but also don't be afraid to use it for your own current purposes, despite their latent current limitations. Take advantage of the surge of optimism and enthusiasm that these devices and processes can trigger, the frameworks they can represent. Just don't forget to maintain a healthy sense of skepticism as you're earning all those points and badges for taking all of those steps. The book that I'd like to recommend today is by John Brockman, and it's entitled Know This, Today's Most Interesting and Important Scientific Ideas, Discoveries, and Developments. And I say the book is by John Brockman because he edited it, but really this is a book that it's a collection of just dozens of essays by different people who are experts in different scientific fields writing about the most interesting thing going on in their field right now that they wish more people knew about. And so for me, this type of book is just a goldmine of fascinating things. And some of the essays, I already knew a decent amount of what they were talking about from reading other pieces that they've written, or in some cases, the books that they've written. A lot of the people who contributed here are authors in their own right. But some of them were completely new to me, and especially some of the astronomy and biology essays that were included in this book. It's really quite groundbreaking and eye-opening stuff. It's also very recent, so it's not a collection of stuff that everyone already knows about. Many of these developments will probably not be in the scientific textbooks for another several years at the minimum. I listened to this book in the audiobook form. It's also available in other formats. If that is your preference for what it's worth, the audiobook is very listenable, and there are several different narrators, so you don't get sick of one person's voice, over the scope of the, I want to say, 13 or 14 hours that it goes on for. So if you're looking for an interesting book, if you want to have your mind repeatedly blown by interesting things, consider picking up a copy of Know This by John Brockman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io, my blog is at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at Let'snotethings.com. Feel free to reach out on social media and say hello. I am at Colin is my name, pretty much everywhere you might think to look. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.